0: Emily and I were recently out going for a walk, and as we're walking along, we're actually up in Michigan earlier this summer, and we're going down the sidewalk, and there was a sign in somebody's front yard that we saw. It's probably a sign that you've seen before, but you see it on the screen here. Uh, Anytime you see this sign, it generally evokes a pretty strong response. It's either extreme positivity or extreme negativity, but there's not much middle ground when it comes to this sign or others like them. But what I see, when I I see that sign, is underneath some of the political rhetoric, I see a cry for human dignity that undergirds, and it's applied to to racial injustice, or to refugees, or to a same-sex couple, to women's rights, or other issues. But underneath the uh, the, the hot button issues we see today, underneath that is a cry for dignity, for human rights. I understand this, this sign is not one that's typically associated with conservative Christianity, but the reality is that human dignity is something that's deeply rooted in the Bible. And I, I recognize that. Oftentimes, those who use this sign in their yard or on their social media pages or wherever may actually have a fairly strong hostility to Christianity. I I get that. But the point I want to make is the actual values that that are are underneath that sign are deeply Christian theological values of the humanity and dignity of all persons. Maybe you haven't thought about it that way, and so I hope you're a little bit intrigued by that kind of Thought experiment leading into this morning's sermon. Before we dive all the way in, I just want to make one quick introductory comment that here we are in week six out of seven in this, this series titled Not Your Own, where we're looking at the dominant cultural narrative of our day, that you must be true to yourself, look into your own heart, find the truth there, and live it out. And we've analyzed that topic from a biblical perspective on many specific topics, but we've also sought to zoom out and see a really big view of God because we know that when we see God rightly, it reorients our lives and everything else falls in place following after. That's why we've read Isaiah 40 every single week to get this grand view of who God is. Maybe you've noticed we've introduced two new songs during this series, of a similar theme, we sing, behold our God, seated on his throne, come let us adore him with sweeping pictures of who God is. And in the song we just sang this morning, Christ be magnified, where we sing, I won't be formed by feelings, I'll hold fast to what is true. All of this coming together to help us get a bigger view of God, a smaller view of ourselves, and a right way of trusting and following him as we go. Today we continue this theme in looking at the topic of human dignity and what God's word says about human dignity and specifically how the gospel applies to human dignity. So our, our structure this morning will be four points. We'll look at the basis of human dignity, the loss of human dignity, the picture of human dignity, and the pursuit of human dignity. The, the basis, the loss, the picture, and the pursuit. We start with the basis of human dignity, what we're starting with here is the core biblical teaching on what it means to be a human, namely that all human beings are made in the image of God. It's a Latin phrase, perhaps you've heard, the imago Dei the image of God, that all humans are made in the image and likeness of God. This is first taught in the very first book of the Bible, the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Here's what we read. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That very verbiage there, made in the image of God, and what's laid out in Genesis one continues to be explained across the rest of Scripture. So, Psalm one thirty nine, you see on the screen, expanding this topic of or this principle here, the image of God, the Imago Dei. Psalm one thirty nine, verse thirteen: For you formed my inward parts; you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful are your works my soul knows it very well my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me for me when as yet there were none of them hear that Every human being made in the image of God, intricately woven together by the very hand of God. Psalm 8 would describe humanity in this way. "says Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. That last phrase, crowned him with glory and honor, has often been picked up by theologians who say that humanity is the crown of creation, the pinnacle of creation. And so we recognize that in humanity, we find these people, persons, every single one, made in the image of God, and this is the basis of all human dignity and all human rights that you are made in the image of God. Our church statement of faith speaks to this, and it's important to remember what we have already together come together and said we do believe these things. Here's what our church statement of faith says. We believe that all humans are made in the image of God. As the only beings made in the image of God, all humans possess immense value. Because God deeply loves humanity and identifies himself as a defender of the weak, we should do the same. As God's ambassadors on Earth, we are called to defend, protect and value all human life. This includes preborn babies, the elderly, the physically challenged, the mentally challenged, the poor, refugees, orphans and widows. You see, to be made in the image of God means that we reflect and represent God in ways that no other creature does. We reflect who he is and we represent what he wants to do in ways that no other creature does. It's been said that to be made in the image of God in part means that you have a mind, emotions, and will. That's part of what it is to be a human. Mind, emotions, will. God has mind, emotions, will. So do we. Now, some might look at that and say, yes, Justin, that's true, but don't some other created beings, don't some animals have mind or emotion or will? Don't, don't dogs or, or chimpanzees or something have mind, emotion, will as well? It's a good point that is raised there. I'm not denying that other creatures might have capacity in one of those areas, but what we're saying is that humans have a much higher degree in each of those areas. It's not merely that humans think more thoughts, but there's a fundamentally different kind of mind that humans have. Think of it this way. You might be able to think about this morning a thought you had yesterday. It's Not just that you can think, you can think about thinking. And tomorrow, you could think back and you could say on Monday morning, I'm thinking about a time on Sunday afternoon when I was thinking about a thought I had on Saturday. So it's not just that you can think more thoughts than an animal, it's that you have a fundamental different kind of being. You as a human being are the crown of creation. And so to live in light of a biblical worldview means that you must embrace the imago Dei. Biblical ethics demand that we defend all persons, and especially those whose dignity and rights are trampled upon by the culture in which we live. It's critical that we recognize that human dignity begins at conception. It doesn't merely begin, or doesn't, doesn't begin at all actually, at the moment of birth, nor does it begin at the moment when, life, when rights are legalized in a particular country. It's neither of those, it's at the moment of conception. But it's also important that we recognize that human dignity and rights extend all the way to the grave not just so long as a person is bringing productivity or economic value with their life. It's on both ends of the spectrum we have to recognize that. So practically speaking, then, we must recognize that human dignity belongs to the child in the womb and the elderly woman with Alzheimer's. Human dignity belongs to the man born in India into the lowest caste system. It belongs to the refugee to the orphan, to the widow, to the physically, mentally disabled. Human dignity belongs to the racial minority who suffered injustice. It belongs to those living in sexual perversion or gender confusion. It belongs, that is, human dignity belongs to all humans because all humans are made in the image of God. And this is a foundational and essential truth of Scripture. And if you look at the history of the world, what you basically find is one group of people trying to convince themselves that another group of people doesn't actually possess full human dignity, and it's okay for them to steal their rights from them because they've justified that in one way or another. It's a denial of this fundamental truth. And that brings us to our second point this morning, the loss of human dignity, the loss of human dignity. We know that as soon as sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, humans almost immediately began denying the dignity of others. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They say, we know better than you. We're going to do it our way, not your way. We want to be in charge and not have to submit to you. And what almost immediately follows, Genesis chapter 4, Cain decides it's going to be a good idea for me to kill my brother Abel. And then just a couple of chapters later, Genesis chapter 9, God invokes the death penalty as a deterrent because humans are seeking to kill others, to deny the dignity that rightfully belongs to them, and God says, no, I want to protect and preserve that dignity even as you're losing it. Genesis chapter 14, we read of the first war. Genesis chapter 16, we read of power dynamics where Sarai is not pleased with her servant Hagar and forces her into poverty. Genesis 19, in the city of Sodom, we read of rampant sexual abuse of the homosexual and heterosexual variety. We're not even to the 20th chapter in the first book of the Bible. You see, as soon as sin enters the world, humans almost immediately begin denying the dignity that belongs to others. And this theme that we see in the opening parts of Genesis, I will, in just a moment, kind of walk through a historical survey and see how what has happened there has really been the pattern of human life. So I wonder if you just kind of come with me on a a historical journey of sorts and see this loss of human dignity. You go back about 400 years before Jesus came to earth. One of the greatest philosophers of all time, Aristotle, wrote one of the greatest ethics textbooks in the history of the world. And yet, here's what he said. As to exposing or rearing the children born, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be reared. One of the greatest philosophers, who wrote maybe the greatest ethical textbook in the history of the world, says that loss of human dignity. You move forward a couple hundred years to the Romans, Julius Caesar is. Making his claims to the emperorship, he must claim to be a divine in order to be the emperor of Rome. And what evidence does he offer to say, yes, I am divine, I am a deity? He says, I've killed a million foreigners and enslaved another million more. Because I can steal the dignity from others. That's how you know I'm a god. The loss of human dignity. You move over another hundred years or so to the second century. You go to modern day Turkey which is the ancient city of Ephesus, and we find the first known gynecology textbook. And within that textbook, there's a chapter titled this, How to Recognize the Newborn That's Worth Rearing. The clear implication, there are many newborns not worth rearing. How do you find out which ones are? The loss of human dignity. You move forward 1,000, 1,500 years or so, you move to German philosopher in the 19th century. Friedrich Nietzsche said the following, the weak and ill-constituted shall perish, and one shall help them to do so. Not just the weak and ill-constituted are going to perish, but actually it's good, right, moral, and just that you should help them to do that. The loss of human dignity. We could look abroad around our world and see all manner of communist nations and dictators murdering tens of millions of their own people. You could look to the South African apartheid and the wickedness there of the loss of human dignity. You could look to our own nation, see the wicked institution of slavery. You could see the wicked legalization of tens of millions of babies being murdered. You could look to something perhaps less known, that in the early 1900s, there began to be laws in the United States that made it legal for forced sterilizations of certain persons, rendering them unable to reproduce. And the very first state in the whole United States of America to pass such forced sterilization laws, Indiana where they said that the feeble-mindedness was a genetic trait that would be passed down, along with weak morals and poverty, that they were all hereditary traits. And as those were identified, people were subjected to forced sterilization here in our state and in this country. By the 1930s, more than 30 states had passed such laws, and over 70,000 Americans were subjected to forced sterilizations. Hitler's Germany would adopt forced sterilization laws some 20 years later, and Hitler would go on record himself saying that he studied and learned from our laws. And the German consulate in Los Angeles would say that the American system was helpful for them in seeing how to move the legislative process forward in this regard. Now, in our day, we see a growing, wicked movement that seeks to mutilate the genitals of children, often without even the consent of the parents under the auspices of transgenderism. Folks, truly there is nothing new under the sun. And you can go back to the book of Genesis, and you can look at the ancients, and you can look at the Germans, and you can look here, and you can see everywhere, when sin enters the picture, we deny human dignity. We fail to recognize the image of God in all persons. Okay, I understand, it's kind of hard to stomach some of these things and to think through the gross brutalities that have occurred in this world and in our nation and even in our state. So why do I go here, and why do I linger, and why do we make this point? I think it's important for us to do three things, to look inward, and to look around, and to look ahead. It's important to look inward first, recognizing this, that if blindness to the image of God in our fellow man can strike the greatest philosophers and the greatest civilizations and the greatest countries of all time. Do you know who else it can strike? Me and you. And so we are wise to ask ourselves, where am I prone to overlook the image of God and human dignity in my fellow man? Am I prone to overlook that when it comes to refugees? Am I prone to overlook this truth when it comes to trans activists? Am I prone to overlook this truth when I see people living in sexual perversion? Or perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian listening. And for people like myself who uphold biblical teaching on sexual ethics, it's really hard for you to recognize the image of God in me and other conservative Christians. It's important for all of us to recognize this. But we don't just look in, we look around and say, where not only am I, but where is our tribe, the kind of people that we tend to hang out with that look and think like us, where's our tribe prone to overlook human dignity? See, this doctrine of total depravity, where the Bible says the human heart and every human heart has been corrupted and perverted by sin, it means that that sinfulness will show up in people and places where we don't tend to expect it. And history will tell us that it even shows up in churches and in schools where we may not expect it. And so we are wise to consider this and look at ourselves and our friend groups and say, where are we prone to overlook human dignity? The pro-life movement has done a really good job of focusing on human dignity at the earliest stages of life. But I am concerned that we're lacking energy in that movement towards valuing the elderly in the back stages of life. That there be appropriate protections there as euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide are on the rise. I think churches that are like ours have often allowed the, the refugee conversation to become a political issue. And we've overlooked some major needs that are present. It's maybe not been defined and informed biblically as much as it has been politically for us we're wise to ask where might we overlook this and and we don't just look in and we don't just look around but we look ahead to recognize this and and hear this clearly the glory days are going to be in glory with jesus not in the american past Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 10 even says, look, it's not wise that you say, oh, I look back to the good old days. It's not wise to do that, God says. Look ahead to the future in glory. On occasion I get asked, why do we not have a a flag on stage? Here's why, friends, because we have a cross in the front and a cross in the back, and the cross is what unites us, the cross is what defines our mission, and the cross is what defines our future. We praise God for that. We recognize that in this country, in this world, things might get better, they might get worse. I don't know what will happen in the next 10 years, but the trajectory of history says it's probably going to get worse before it gets better because the normal pursuit of the human heart is selfish and we've seen that it cuts across all time periods all cultures all countries it happens in the cities it happens in the suburbs it happens in rural areas the deep inclination of the human heart is pursuit of self at all cost or it's what romans 3 says no one is righteous no not one no one does good all have turned aside they've pursued what's good for them So so I understand the second point is a dark one, and it's kind of depressing to linger on. It's hard to stay here, but you must. Because if you listen to the cultural teleprompters that tell you to be true to yourself, look into your own heart, and determine which humans are worthy of dignity, you will follow the trajectory of history that I just laid out, and you will find someone who is not worthy of respect and dignity and rights and you're going to have a good reason to justify it. Everybody always does. They always do. Here's why this seems like a good idea today. No, you must not look to yourself. You must look to an external source. And that brings us to our third point, the picture of human dignity. The picture of human dignity. Now, I've just shown the long-term patterns of what we might call subhuman behavior. But you're asking, Justin, isn't there a more positive outlook? What does real human dignity look like? Let me take you back to the scriptures and show you what it says. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of what perfected humanity is supposed to look like. Or Hebrews chapter 1 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Well, I love that phrase. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. It's as if the writer of Hebrews is saying, here's the prototype of what humanity is supposed to look like, the exact imprint of the nature of God. And then in this this really fascinating turn in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer takes, you remember just a moment ago, I read from Psalm 8, he made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. That's what all humanity is. Hebrews 2 takes that Psalm 8 text and applies it to Jesus. Listen to this. This is awesome. He says this, "'It's been testified somewhere. "'What is man that you are mindful of him, "'or the son of man that you care for him? "'You made him for a little while lower than the angels, "'and you have crowned him with glory and honor, "'putting everything in subjection under his feet.'" Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That was the whole last point, right? Not yet everything is in subjection to him, but it's coming. We keep reading. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's beautiful. This is who Jesus is. And so what we're saying is if you want to see the ultimate picture of humanity, humanity at its finest pinnacle, look here, Jesus. He's the one who had all the strength in the world. He created the universe out of nothing. He upholds the universe by his very powerful word. And yet he came not to be served, but to serve, Mark 10, 45. He came not merely to heal wounds, but to heal your wounds of sin by bearing your sin burden in his body, in actual wounds on the cross, 1 Peter two twenty four. He came to the wicked tax collectors, the corrupt politicians of the day, and said, "I'll go eat lunch with you. I've got time for you." He went to the drunks. He went to the addicts. He said, "I don't merely have room for you at my table. I'll reserve a table specifically for you with me." Come near. He went to those in sexual sin and said, "You're not a freak." I'm going to welcome you into my family if you will repent and believe in my name and I'll welcome you with open arms. He went to the lepers. He went to the social outcasts. And he said, I'll come be your friend. Where the world targets the weak to exploit them, Jesus targets the weak to elevate them. Where the Romans claimed their deity based on how many they'd killed, Jesus flips it upside down and I'll said, I'll show you strength. I'll show you what it means to be God. I'll die for the weak to protect them and to defend them. Where Darwinism claims survival of the fittest by the death of the weakest, Jesus flips it around and says, how about this? The sacrifice of the strongest, namely me, for the survival and the flourishing of the weakest, namely you. Your heart instinctively cries out in joy when you hear that saying, yes, that's how it's supposed to be. It's because you're made in the image of God and your heart is made to long for that reality where the perfect picture of strength lays it down in defense of the weakest. And friend, I want to tell you, if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, this is an incredible argument, I believe, for the truth of Christianity, Catches. The argument is not Christians are kind, atheists are mean, therefore be a Christian. That's not the argument. The argument is this that Darwinian evolution says it is good for the weak to die. We should desire and seek and pursue that. Christianity, at its very core teaching, flips that around and says no, it's good for the strong to lay down their lives in the protection and the defense of the weak. It's a fundamental difference. And this is why when we see stories in songs, in movies, in shows that talk about redemption through the sacrifice of the strong for the weak that our heart is drawn to them. I can't help but make this point without thinking of the greatest movie of all time. Everyone knows that it is Gladiator. (laughs) Where the righteous general, if you're not familiar, the righteous general Maximus is exiled by the wicked emperor Commodus the emperor actually tries to kill him but he escapes and the righteous general Maximus starts to work his way back to Rome he works his way up from the from the bottom as it were fighting in gladiatorial games trying to make it back to the Colosseum he's seeking to expose the darkness and to free the slaves that are around him And as he makes it to the Colosseum and he uses his strength to protect the weak, the crowd starts to see what's going on. And there's a cry that starts to ring out a chant. Maximus, Maximus, Maximus. Because their hearts are so excited. That's how it's supposed to be. That's how this is supposed to work. And in the very last scene of the movie, Maximus dies. And the future remains undecided. They're here in the middle of the Colosseum floor in Rome, and a woman stands up. She gives this speech, and she looks into the eyes of every single person there, and she says, Is Rome worth one good man's life? They linger on it, and she says, Honor him. Honor him. Guys, we recognize, yes, Maximus, he talked a good game, and he gave a good model, But ultimately, like all humans, he came up short. He was not able to fully complete the work he intended to do. But praise God, Jesus didn't just talk the right talk, and he didn't just live the right life, but he finished the job. He said, it is finished on the cross. He did everything he came to do. He told us the way, showed us the way, and then commissioned us to follow him. And just as that woman in the movie looks out and says, is Rome worth one good man's life? Honor him. So we look at Jesus and say, look at this God-man's life. See the picture of perfect humanity and go and do likewise and honor him. And that brings us to our fourth and our final point this morning, the pursuit of human dignity. We've seen the basis and the loss and then the picture. And now we think practically about the pursuit of human dignity. We recognize that Jesus calls people to follow him, to be his disciples To be a disciple means to be a learner. You're learning the words and the ways of Jesus. Some of us trend more to learning the words of Jesus, and some trend more to learning the ways of Jesus, and we need to learn both. And so we ask, if we're to follow the words and the ways of Jesus, then what does that look like? Let's go straight to his words in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 35. He says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. The words and the ways of Jesus. We see them and then follow them. Friends, this means that we, we recognize, we prioritize what God prioritizes. Psalm 68.5, we read that he's father to the father was protector of the widow's. Psalm 82 in verse 3 says that we are to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. We're to maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. James 1 we read what is pure what is religion that is undefiled before God the Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep one unstained from the world. This is the clear teaching of scripture whichever testament you go to, whichever book you want to go to, you're going to see it everywhere. And throughout Christian history, we've seen People following Jesus in his words and his ways with radical examples of obedience here. Christians were the first to form hospitals that actually targeted the weak. See, the the Greeks, the Romans, they had their own hospitals of sorts, but they were, were reserved for those that had fought in the military to get them restored so they could go conquer again. Christian hospitals were the first to have words for the lepers, for the outcasts of society, for mercy ministry, you might say. We've seen that wherever Christianity has advanced, there's been development in education and medicine because that's what takes the weak and the lowly and those kinds of institutions make opportunity for human flourishing rather than suffering. Reminded of William Wilberforce, the British politician in the 1700s who was converted at age 26, and immediately recognized the wickedness of the slave trade and fought in parliament for the next 40 years for the abolition of the slave trade. And a month after his death, praise God, it received the king and queen's approval for it to be ended. Decades of faithfully laboring, not always seeing fruit, not always seeing good news, but continuing to strive to see human dignity. You think of the deep tradition of Christian orphanages, You might think of Charles Spurgeon in London in the 19th century and the orphanages he founded there, or George Mueller of Bristol, who helped some 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. If you're looking for Christian biography, go back and read of those two men, George Mueller of Bristol and Charles Haddon Spurgeon and their work to restore human dignity. You could look into the modern day and see that charitable giving by almost any metric is dominated by Christians. It's not just church-based giving. If you isolate it to only secular charities, two-thirds of those who attend church give to secular charities. Recent study showed, whereas less than half of those who don't attend church gave to secular charities. And on average, the gifts from churchgoers was twenty percent larger. Because they recognize the image of God must be defended and protected among all people. Christians, on average, not on average, just a straight-up statistic, adopt more than twice as many kids as those who aren't Christians. This legacy continues. Unless we think that we're just about running victory laps about what Christians in the past have done, what might this mean for us today specifically in pursuing the protection and the valuing of human dignity? Let me suggest the first thing that you ought to do is ask God to give you a heart of compassion toward the weak. Ask him to give you a heart of compassion towards the weak because a heart of compassion to the weak is far more important than the type of compassion that's shown. Last week, we said a heart of generosity is far more important than the amount of generosity. It's the same this week. The heart of compassion is far more important than the type of compassion because you can do acts of mercy with a hard, rebellious heart that is self-justifying. We don't want that. We're coming up next week, we'll be talking about the fall offering, and one aspect of that is our community Christmas project, where we recognize families in our community who may not be able to afford Christmas, and so we'll together, collectively, give towards that, and then adopt families where you can go and spend time with the family. I'm going to urge you to be involved in that, both in the giving and in the signing up, to be with families in our community in need. It's a great way to actively put that into practice as a church together. But there's other steps. You may prayerfully consider adoption as what God is calling your family to. Or you may say, you know what, I'm going to serve in special needs here at Parkside as we have more kids who need extra one-on-one help. You may volunteer at a life center helping ladies with unplanned pregnancies. Or you may say, I'm just going to offer to babysit for a single mom and help her out. You may get involved with Wheeler Mission downtown. Or you may choose to individually support missionaries who are involved in human trafficking and rescuing people from that wicked industry. Friends, you may recognize, hey, we're about a year away, a little more than a year away from the next election cycle. And like you are regularly called to steward the treasure God has given you, you say, I'm going to make a big point this year to steward well the vote that God has given me. And I'm going to write to my representatives and I'm going to urge them to consider the whole array of ways that human dignity is being lost in our world. And not just the one that they think will get the most votes, but push them on other issues that may not be so central to their party's platform. And say we have to see all of this, steward your vote well. This Thanksgiving, we're going to have an opportunity for you to host international students from IUPUI for Thanksgiving dinner. Here's a chance to see the, the, the sojourner among our midst, who's only here for a short time, may not know any Christians, to open up the family dinner and welcome somebody in. This is a way you might live that out. There's refugee ministry in Indianapolis that's happening in significant ways. Perhaps you want to get involved there. If you're not sure what that looks like, I'd encourage you to talk to Ben and Maria Walker. Ben and Maria served in Germany for two and a half years, and a major part of their ministry was uh, reaching out to and assisting Syrian refugees in Western Germany. They're being sent back as missionaries to serve in a similar region. Ask them, what does this look like? How can I practically help refugees in our midst? You may ask God to give you a tender heart and a changed heart towards panhandlers, where you've previously been noticing What are the reasons they're there? What did they do wrong? You want to have a heart of compassion that recognizes someone in need. I I tell you two, two stories I heard about panhandlers from members of our congregation not so long ago. One told me this. They said, you know, I recognize that there's a human being there, and it's really hot outside. And so they went to the grocery store, bought a bag of groceries that didn't require refrigeration, and sat down next to that individual and ate a meal with them and left the rest there. Say, I see you as a human being who is hungry, and I'm going to sit and eat with you. So I didn't really want to do the cash handout thing. I didn't know about that. But there, there was another member said to me, Justin, I recognized I was all concerned about, you know, if I give them 20 bucks, like, what are they going to go buy? Are they going to go buy a beer or something? And is that a good thing? And recognized, you know what? It's really hot outside, and I bet they're really thirsty, and maybe they're not going to make the same beverage choice that I would, but it's still really hot and they're really thirsty. I'm going to give them a little bit of money to help out with that. There's all sorts of ways we can apply these principles of recognizing human dignity and pursuing human dignity, but we ask God for a heart of compassion and strength to walk in obedience. Here's the point of the whole sermon. Boil it just down like this. We know that every human being possesses immense dignity because they are made in the image of God because of sin. Each of us is prone to deny that dignity to others. And so, the remedy to our selfishness and the model for our service is to look to Jesus and then ask for his grace to walk in humble obedience, whatever that looks like. Let's pray.